Hi everyone, and welcome to the third episode in my series exploring psychedelic compounds as the horizon for mental health therapy. Today I'm going to outline the current state of mental health therapies and why emerging therapies not only hold promise, but almost seem to be a necessity in the modern day. I want to make it very clear that I'm making a distinction between mental health disorders and psychiatric disorders as a whole. For the most part, when I mention mental health disorders, I'm referring to depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorders. I understand that overall psychiatric health is a hugely complicated field, and I don't want to misrepresent the information that I'm presenting. Other psychiatric illnesses that are not covered by this cast, but may be covered in future episodes, include OCD, ADHD, bipolar and personality disorders, dementia, and schizophrenia. Because of the complicated nature of the drug discovery, development, and approval processes, as well as the inherent difficulties in selecting adequate mental health therapies, I will be dividing this topic up over two episodes. This first episode is going to take a careful look at the state of mental health therapies, including their efficacy, safety, and their current demand for use. I will also be taking a brief look at why I believe psychedelic therapies represent a route of treatment with such tremendous potential in mitigating mental health issues. In the next episode, I will be expanding on why mental health therapies have hit the wall in terms of development and how that has led to stagnation in the field rather than consistent advancement as is seen in other ailments and diseases. One of the biggest reasons for making an episode like this is to provide a foundation and framework for future episodes in order to be able to compare how well emerging treatments work in comparison to what is currently available. Having some background on how mental health issues like depression manifest is essential to understanding the strongest methods of treatment. To help my explanation, it's time for a bit of a crash course in physiology. Although this is going to be a hugely simplified overview, it should give some insight into the mechanisms of fighting mental health issues. At a very basic level, there are three key chemicals in the brain which mediate the way you function every day. Many people have heard of them, although not everyone is certain as to what exactly it is that they do. These three chemicals are the neurotransmitters serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. Collectively, they're called the monoamines. This trio is responsible for a gigantic portion of normal brain function, and having careful balance between the three is important in maintaining that function. When the three chemicals are harmonious, the brain is able to communicate between its various regions properly to produce a compound called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF for short. BDNF is an important part of neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to maintain existing neurons or to promote new neural connections. When a person is met with stressful or challenging stimuli, the presence of BDNF allows for new connections in the brain to form, which in turn allows that person to adapt to accommodate and deal with those stressful stimuli. In people suffering with depression or other mental health afflictions, there tends to be a relative deficiency of BDNF in the brain due to imbalances in the monoamines. The result is a lack of neuroplasticity, which prevents the efficient forming of new neural connections in the brain. In other words, adapting to stressful stimuli can be more challenging. In addition to proper balance between the big three chemicals, exercise and stimulating conversation have also been shown to cause BDNF release in the brain. As mental health disorders are a hugely complicated and multifactorial issue, I don't want to make the claim that this is the only relevant factor contributing to them. 
Oftentimes, monoamine levels are just a small part of a much larger puzzle, which can include the presence of other health conditions, diet, family genetics, and environmental factors like emotional stress, sleep quality, and substance use or reliance. But for the simplicity of this cast, I will be focusing mainly on the monoamine levels, as that is where most current medications tend to act. Remember to take this information with a grain of salt and understand that chemical levels in the brain are a significant, albeit fractional, part of mental health as a whole, and this episode is meant mainly to give some insight on what is current in order to facilitate future topics. Most current mental health therapies focus on trying to restore the brain's monoamines to normal levels in order to achieve a regulated level of BDNF release. What can be very frustrating for patients throughout this process is its pseudo-random feeling method of medication choice, which can often feel like guesswork. The reason that mental health therapies can seem so hit or miss is the lack of concrete measurements that can be used to diagnose the issue. For many health conditions, there exists a measured value, which can be used to show that a given disease is present or absent. For instance, most cardiovascular conditions have a high or low blood pressure associated with them, diabetes has blood sugar and A1C levels which can be measured, and infectious diseases have an associated pathogen which can often be determined through cultures. The nature of mental health issues being, for the most part, non-physical problems, makes diagnosing the conditions a nearly entirely clinical process, meaning that there are generally no quantitative values used to assess whether a condition is present. The monoamines in the brain, for instance, are not easily measured, and so conditions like depression are diagnosed at the discretion of the assessing physician. One unfortunate byproduct of this process is a level of uncertainty as to where exactly the root of the issue is. It could be that serotonin levels are low, or perhaps it could be norepinephrine levels. Maybe a mix of the two? Maybe neither are involved at all. In these cases where there's some gray area in selecting a therapy, clinician experience generally becomes the guiding hand of therapy selection. As mental health issues are still fairly poorly understood and require much more study, it often makes the most sense to choose a medication which has the highest track rate of success. In general, serotonin is the monoamine that seems to be deficient most often in cases of mental health disorders. The logical solution, then, is to increase the levels of serotonin to directly combat this deficiency. How exactly do we go about doing that, though? There are two main ways to accomplish this task. We can either prolong the life of serotonin in the brain, or we can prevent its reuptake into neurons. For the sake of this example, I'm going to use serotonin, although any of the monoamines could be interchanged here, depending on the patient and scenario. Let's take another quick look at the physiology. When the brain produces the monoamines, they are released into a space between the neurons called the synaptic space in response to an electrical signal in the neuron. In this space, the monoamines can interact with receptors on the next neuron to transmit an electrical impulse to cause an action to occur, like thought, muscular movement, increases or decreases in blood pressure, or some physiological reactions that are imperceptible. After interacting with these receptors, one of two things can happen. The monoamine can be degraded by an enzyme called monoamine oxidase and effectively removed from the synapse, or the monoamine can be recycled by being taken up into the first neuron from where it was released, ready to be used again.
In either case, the monoamine exits the synaptic space and can no longer elicit any action at its receptors, including regulating the release of BDNF. This takes us back to the 1950s and the invention of ipraniazid, which was developed as the first monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which prolonged the lifetime of the monoamines by preventing their breakdown. This medication, initially developed to treat tuberculosis, was found to have antidepressant activity as an unexpected side effect. Building on this finding, newer monoamine oxidase inhibitors were developed to be more selective to certain subtypes of monoamine oxidase to minimize the harmful adverse effects often associated with ipronizide use, including profound blood pressure increases leading to hypertensive crisis. The severity of the adverse effects associated with the use of many current monoamine oxidase inhibitors has caused their popularity to fall off in favor of newer, better tolerated treatments. When investigating medications to treat schizophrenia, another serendipitous discovery was made in the 1950s. Imipramine was a medication being tested for reducing psychosis, and although it didn't work very well for that purpose, it was found to have notable improvements in depressive symptoms in a similar vein to ipraniazid, although the mechanism of action was very different. Imipramine blocked the reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin, prolonging their lifetime in the synapse and ultimately restoring the monoamine levels to normal balance. This medication was a major breakthrough and defined the class of tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, named for their three-ring structure. Most modern TCAs, like amitriptyline, desipramine, and nortriptyline, are still used for depression and anxiety, although their side effect profiles are fairly undesirable, including effects like dizziness, confusion, drowsiness, and low blood pressure. This takes us to perhaps the most profound discovery in terms of mental health, the discovery of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. By the late 1960s, the monoamine hypothesis was beginning to sink in, and a drug company called Eli Lilly began developing compounds to prevent serotonin reuptake to treat depression. In 1974, their compound LY110140, later called fluoxetine, or as it's better known, Prozac, was developed. By 1987, it was FDA-approved, and even today, it stands as one of the best-selling drugs of all time. Other SSRIs that are widely used today include citalopram, escitalopram, sertraline, and paroxetine. Building on the success of Prozac, other drug companies began to experiment with monoamine reuptake inhibitors and developed bupropion, a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor, or NDRI, and venlafaxine, a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, or SNRI. Both medications were found to be exceptionally effective in treating depression and still see widespread use today. In the last three decades, there's been little progress made beyond this. When new antidepressant medications are being developed, they tend to fall into the SSRI or SNRI categories, and although they may provide some modest benefits over their predecessors, they don't do anything inherently innovative. For instance, the newest SSRI, Velazidone, which was approved by the FDA in 2011, does essentially the same thing as Prozac more than two decades later, and the newest SNRI, levomilnosiprine, approved by the FDA in 2013, does essentially the same thing as venlafaxine two decades later. It's because of this stagnation in innovation that diminishing returns are beginning to occur for antidepressants, and without a breakthrough discovery, we appear to be reaching the limits of what the monoamine hypothesis can explain and help us correct. 
There does seem to be some hope, though, for pioneering therapies. Newer studies are beginning to look beyond the monoamine hypothesis to another neurotransmitter called glutamate and how it affects the NMDA receptor, which could play a key role in depression and mental health disorders. The anesthetic and pseudopsychedelic ketamine and a derivative called S-ketamine are being investigated for this profound mitigation of depressive symptoms. This topic is likely to be a theme for a future episode, so I'll check back in when the data is more robust. Although controversial, psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin and other Schedule I drugs like MDMA and Ibogaine are possible routes of therapy beyond what has already been investigated in the past. If nothing else, they could be valuable starting points to develop new theories into the causes of and treatments for mental health disorders. Despite the relatively sound theory in treating mental health disorders, there remains much to be desired in terms of treatment efficacy. Numerous studies and anecdotal evidence have shown that inducing remission of specific ailments is not a guarantee for any patient. A study conducted by Fava and Davidson in 1996 estimated that as much as one-third of patients using classical pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments to treat depression did not adequately respond to therapy. This places these patients in a category called treatment-resistant depression, where the routes of treatment become less common. At this point, another prominent study, the Sequenced Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression, or STAR-D study, conducted by Rush in 2006, becomes the guide for therapy. Patients are escalated through treatment regimens with slightly differing mechanisms while trying to achieve remission. This process involves up to four steps, and following the final stage, two-thirds of all patients are able to achieve remission of their symptoms. Although this sounds fairly good, and make no mistake, it is, this still leaves nearly 10% of patients without a solution to their initial problem after having gone through four rounds of differing medications. Additionally, this process is far from easy for those suffering with mental health issues. Most traditional antidepressant medications, while effective once used for a period of 4-12 to 12 weeks, have many unwanted adverse effects associated with them. Oftentimes, patients can feel restless, irritable or anxious, they may develop insomnia or hypersomnia, sexual dysfunction is relatively common, as are sweating, dry mouth, and upset stomach. What's even worse is that these effects tend to come about in the first couple of weeks of medication use, before the medication has had the chance to kick in to help mitigate depressive symptoms. The consequence of this issue is that many patients will discontinue therapy by themselves before any benefit could feasibly be expected. A 2015 paper by Samples estimated that 23% of patients will self-discontinue medication use within two weeks, and another 46% will stop use within six months of beginning therapy. The most commonly cited reasons for stopping are the intolerable adverse effects as mentioned before, and feeling that the medication was not working. As if this wasn't enough, the STAR-D approach also comes with another major drawback overall treatment time. Because most antidepressant medications are trialed for a period of four weeks prior to assessing whether they are working, the time spent troubleshooting the patient's unique experience can become extended. Imagine you are suffering from a debilitating mental health issue. You are hopeful that with treatment, your condition will improve within a couple of months. You're told to take an SSRI called citalopram and you will be reassessed in four weeks. After that four-week period, you feel no better. 
So the decision is made to switch you to a different medication, an SNRI called venlafaxine. After four more weeks, you do feel that your depressive symptoms are improving, but the medication makes you intolerably jittery and you cannot sleep at night no matter how hard you try. In an attempt to combat this issue, you're switched to another medication, mirtazapine, which you use for four weeks. Not only does it not work, but you find the opposite issue. It makes you intolerably sleepy and you cannot get out of bed. I should also mention that I forgot to tell you that between each of these treatments, there's often a two to three week washout period in which you must taper off your use of whatever the current medication is at the time to prevent your depressive symptoms from returning with a vengeance. This is the methodology that the STAR-D system uses. One thing is abundantly clear. It's that it is demotivating to continue this trial and error process, and it's taking up your time and causing you side effects beyond your initial depression. If you were to go through the entire process, it could be expected to take upwards of 30 weeks, and even then, your chance of achieving remission is only about 66%. With this experience in mind, it doesn't come as any surprise that mental health patients often find difficulty in adhering to modern treatments. Innovation is a necessity. So with this information in mind, it should be evident why there is demand for innovation in mental health therapies. But what else is driving demand? In addition to the hit-or-miss efficacy and safety components mentioned above, therapies for mental health disorders are becoming much more widely used year after year. A paper published by Pratt in 2017 found that 12.7% of Americans 12 years old and older reported using an antidepressant medication in the past month between the years of 2011 and 2014. Women in this study were found to be twice as likely to be using an antidepressant medication than men, and increasing usage was also seen with increasing age. Nearly two-thirds of these participants had been using their medication for greater than two years at the time of the study, with nearly a quarter having used their medication for more than 10 years. Compared to the 1999-2002 to 2002 statistics, which estimated an overall antidepressant use rate of 7.7%, the 2017 study found a 5% absolute increase in antidepressant usage or a relative increase in usage of 65% over the interluding 15-year period. As mental health conditions become much more widely recognized, diagnosed, and thankfully destigmatized, prescribing of appropriate medications is catching up to reflect the reality that a significant portion of the population encounters adverse mental health periods at some point over their lifetime. This progress is an excellent starting point and will likely grow to meet the current needs of millions suffering needlessly worldwide every year as an estimated 50% of people with mental health disorders do not receive adequate therapy. Unfortunately, the demand for these therapies is likely to skyrocket in the coming years as a direct result of the coronavirus which is sweeping the globe. The two biggest questions in this field right now are how badly can mental health be impacted and how can the healthcare system keep a handle on the issue? Learning from the past in order to understand the future is a timeless concept across all fields of study. So how can we learn from the past in this case in order to ease our transition into the future, given the current global health climate? Well, past pandemics, like the SARS outbreak in 2003, which afflicted slightly more than 8,000 people and resulted in 774 deaths, have been studied carefully in the after years to look for notable trends in overall mental health, and these studies could be key to understanding significant post-pandemic outcomes that we are likely to experience as a society. One study 
conducted by Wu in 2005 and published in the CDC's Emerging Infectious Disease Journal, showed approximately 36% of patients who survived the disease developed lingering PTSD symptoms for months afterwards. Another paper, published by Liu in 2006 in Comprehensive Psychiatry, examines the effects of the SARS virus on the mental health outcomes of 549 healthcare workers three years following the outbreak using the validated CESD depression scale. This scale was used in conjunction with analysis of socioeconomic factors to try and link personal life experiences to levels of depression following the pandemic. Overall, the study found that 22.7% of participants developed mild to severe depressive symptoms. To put that into some perspective, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America estimates that between 15 and 20% of people develop major depressive disorder, the most common form of depression, over a lifetime. This means that the study results represent approximately the lifetime rate of depression among participants exposed to the SARS virus in only three years. It was found that working in locations where viral exposure was common, having experienced a violent or traumatic incident just prior to or during the outbreak, and having to perform self-quarantine were all large predictors of depressive symptoms in the following three-year period. Similarly increased rates of alcohol abuse were found among participants of a similar study conducted by Wu in 2006, which examined the same population. Perhaps most notable here is the inclusion of a self-quarantine section in the study questionnaire. Currently, quarantine is a huge component of combating COVID-19, as many listeners likely know and feel the strain from. 60% of healthcare workers in the study who went on to exhibit the highest levels of depression noted that they were required to self-quarantine at some point. This sobering fact, combined with the huge spread of COVID-19, more than 6 million confirmed cases and nearly 400,000 deaths at the time of recording, and several orders of magnitude greater than the extent of the 2003 SARS virus, along with the current civil unrest in the United States and globally, leading to often violent protesting and rioting, means that, at the moment, the world is the perfect storm for accelerating rates of mental health disorders. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll of Americans from May demonstrated that 45% of people felt that their mental health has been impacted negatively by the coronavirus. 19% indicated that this was a major impact. Federal emergency helplines have seen tenfold increases in activity, and mental health initiatives like TalkLine have been swamped with people seeking help. Some models, generated from studies of the 2008 economic recession, have estimated that for every 1% increase in unemployment, the baseline suicide rate increases by 1.6%. This number is especially troubling, given the baseline rate of unemployment in Canada, which usually hovers around 5.6%, has increased to 13% as of April 2020 representing a 7.4% increase in unemployment, which, theoretically, translates to a nearly 12% increase in suicide risk for Canadian citizens. Unemployment numbers are projected to continue to increase into the summer months, with estimates as high as 16.8% by June 2020. In 2017, there were an estimated 4,157 suicides in Canada, making it the 10th most common cause of death in the country. By using the model mentioned previously, slightly more than 400 additional suicides could be expected in the coming year without an adequate response to address this issue.
Equally impactful increases in rates of drug overdoses and substance abuse disorders have been estimated by the Meadows Mental Health Institute. The warning signs here are ringing loud and clear. Without careful attention to the issues at hand, the consequences of an inadequate mental health response will be felt deeply across the country. One single lost Canadian life is a tragedy, and even more so when inadequate programming is in place to help save that life. The American National Alliance for Mental Illness and other prominent mental health associations estimate that as much as $10 billion will be required to adequately respond to the immediate mental health impacts of the coronavirus. This stands as just another addition to the already estimated $38.5 billion required to keep current mental health centres and initiatives alive. Despite these ever-increasing demands, the American federal government managed to provide just $425 million in emergency funding, less than 5% of the estimated immediate requirements of the country. Additionally, only $375 million was given to state-driven initiatives representing less than 1% of estimated requirements for continued provision of adequate mental health care. Although I'm not an expert in federal budgeting, it seems strange that federal governments are willing to incur such enormous amounts of debt when it comes to the economy, but become so stingy when the mental health and well-being of its citizens is the central issue. But to avoid getting overly political, I'll leave that as food for thought. So clearly, the need for mental health therapies is greater than ever. So why am I so dissatisfied with the available treatments? Well, the truth is, I'm not. They are a relatively powerful way to fight mental health issues, and although they do have some drawbacks, they are far from ineffective, especially when they're paired with other therapies like psychiatric counseling. My belief is that emerging therapies like psychedelics represent a journey into a new treatment option for mental health. In much the same way biologics are taking over the drug development scene, or longer-acting formulations are beginning to push shorter-acting agents out of use, psychedelics are a stepping stone into the future. Are there current ways to treat mental health disorders? Absolutely, but maybe there are better ways on the horizon. The only way to know is to investigate and do some research, and even in failure we will have gained some valuable insight. What is certain is that huge pools of anecdotal evidence exist supporting life-altering change from psychedelic use. I'm sure if you ask around enough, you can find somebody from the 60s or 70s with a first-hand account of the potential for these compounds to create lasting, positive mental health outcomes when applied in the proper way in a controlled environment. This body of evidence is more than most research chemicals and developmental drugs have in their infancy. It seems like a shame to have it go to waste without any investigation at all. If you wanted to read any of the studies I have mentioned, they'll be posted in the description of this cast. The next episode will examine the obstacles that psychedelic medications are likely to encounter on the road to therapeutic use. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you're staying safe wherever you are.